Okay, so I'm uh, filling in today for Ryan. Uh, uh, what do I do when uh, you know, I have only one class to teach? Uh, could do something on church history, something on covenant theology, yada, 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 something on worship. Uh, thought what I would do, though, is since the, our high school class, our high school group is going through uh, apologetics, how to know what you believe and why, and then defend that. Uh, give you just a little bit of that and maybe what's probably a refresher course for some of you on how to defend uh, the Christianity and the resurrection in particular, and then also talk just maybe a, a little bit about uh, how to engage somebody on these things. I think this is really important because we have these opportunities all the time around us to talk about Christianity. And, uh, you know, a lot of times I think when we think of evangelism, we get, maybe our palms get a little sweaty and we think of, you know, does that mean I need to go out and pass out tracts or uh, knock on doors uh, and, you know, uh, basically uh, ask people questions cold turkey right there on the spot. You can do that. There's nothing that says you can't do that. Um, I don't think that method is for everyone. I personally don't even think that method is very effective in the long run. Uh, Martin Lloyd-Jones called it a waste of good shoe leather. Uh, I, you, but you can use it. I mean, I, personally, I don't like it when somebody interrupts my morning, is on the doorstep, you know, soliciting something, or I, I, I have only a little bit of time, and maybe you feel the same way when someone comes to the door. I think what's probably uh, more natural to us and what's far more effective is developing relationships with people and, uh, and then uh, knowing what we believe and why and being ready to give an answer to anyone who asks a reason for the hope that lies within us. Um, that's actually scripture, 1 Peter 3.15. And, uh, but it does mean we need to be ready. And, and then there are ways in which you can engage uh, somebody. And uh, let's talk about that just for a few minutes before we get into uh, a defense for the faith that's very simple, easy to remember. Uh, when, you know, you are at, for example, many of you have heard me say these things many times, but hopefully they're, they're good refreshers for us. If you're at a family gathering, you know, around Easter time or Christmas time or whenever, and you are that Christian and there are non-Christians there in your family, um, you may have opportunities that arise. Or you are with uh, coworkers out for lunch or you know, whatever the, the case may be, we find ourselves in these uh, situations where the subject of what we believe comes up, or perhaps the subject of Christianity. And when that happens, you know, I think for a lot of us, we get so nervous thinking, you know, I'm, I'm just not uh, gifted in that way. I'm not, uh, I'm not maybe real charismatic and able to... Uh, be quick on my feet, and, uh, and so we kind of back down and cower down when there is a, a subject that comes up that's worth discussing, because you probably know a whole lot more than you give yourself credit for. And so, you know, Uncle Joe is over there in the corners, you know, talking about what he saw in, you know, the latest special on the network uh, that, that denies the resurrection of Christ, and, uh, now, how can you not engage that person, right? But what are you going to say? Or, uh, you know, your cousin who is now uh, dabbling in Wicca, 
and she's talking about how, you know, it's just wonderful how we all, you know, we're, we're learning about being part of the one universe. And you're like, oh my goodness, what am I going to say? You know, what am I going to say? And then you don't say anything, and then you go home feeling guilty because you didn't say anything, and you wonder, what, what should I have said? I mean, we all go through these things, I'm sure. Um, or a coworker maybe, who asks you, you know, something about why you go to church on Sunday. And you don't want to just talk about church. My church is great. I love church. At my church, we sing. At my church, we do. People can talk about church all day long. The question is, what does your church believe? What do you believe? What's, what's, what's the subject matter? Um, the most important thing, I think, for us to remember in terms of engaging people are questions. Always keep questions. Everything you ask should be in question format. Or, or that sounds ridiculous. Everything you ask should be in question format. Everything you say in some way, should be in question format. So when somebody says uh, anything about Christianity or uh, about what they believe, you know, two simple questions that I always try to ask people is, um, first of all, what do you mean by that? And you, you can ask this question... Uh, no matter who the person is, what do you mean by that? Uh, Greg Kokel talks about how one time he was buying, I think, a rent, getting a rental car, and the girl helping him at the uh, counter was wearing a pentagram. And he just asked her, what, what's this, uh, what does that pentagram mean around your neck? Uh, is that just jewelry, or does it have some religious significance? Now, what just happened there? Is he coming out and saying, you know, what you, do, what you believe is wrong and what I believe is right? She doesn't know who he is. She doesn't know what he believes. He's just asking a question. What do you mean by that thing on there? Or if somebody comes out and uh, challenges Christianity or talks about what they believe, I always start with this question. What do you mean by that? First of all, when you ask questions, okay, what you are doing is you are staying uh, uh, you're, you're putting the, other, the burden of proof on the other person. And then not only that, but you're allowing time for yourself to think. And you're learning what it is that this person believes so you don't misrepresent them. It's actually a very loving thing to do, but also a shrewd thing to do. It's also what Socrates, the philosopher, encouraged uh, his students to do, which become known as the Socratic method, which essentially is just constantly turning the tables, asking questions, and keeping the burden of proof on the other person. If you do this, you could be talking to the most brilliant uh, atheist in the world and still be able to stay on the offense and never, never give up the high ground. Another question I always like to ask is, how did goodness can't spell today you come to that conclusion? See, so often we offer statements when a question will suffice. So I'm getting the person now to tell me a little bit about what they believed or what they believe. Questions put the burden of proof on the other person, making the claims. They're an invitation to discussion and dialogue. They also display our interest in the other person. 
They allow us to gather information about what the other person actually believes. And they also help us steer the conversation in a direction that we want it to go. Because if you're talking to the Mormon or the Jehovah's Witness or the agnostic or the whatever, they're going to try to offer all kinds of uh, statements and maybe questions to you, which you'll have to answer. But by asking questions, you can steer it back to the things that really matter. So, someone says, Christianity is basically the same as all other religions. All paths lead to God. First thing I would say is, well, what do you mean by that? How did you come to that conclusion? What, what do you think Jesus' attitude was about that? It's so simple. But what happens is we get nervous and we forget. Ask questions. Always ask questions. It's just not rational to believe in a creator. Well, what do you mean by that? What kind of God do you reject? What would you consider to be rational proof? Someone says, the Bible was written by men, so we can't trust it. Well, what do you mean by that? Uh, Are you saying that all books written by humans always contain error? Do people always make mistakes when they write? These are all questions. I'm not saying anything. If God exists, don't you think he would be capable of using humans to write down what he wants? Question mark. How familiar are you with the Bible? That's my all-time favorite. How familiar are you really with the Bible? Uh, Because people have, they love to throw statements out there. And this is especially important when the other person has the high ground, such as a professor in a classroom. You know, they, they have the microphone, which is always dangerous. And they're saying the Bible is myth. Don't make a frontal assault on a superior force in an entrenched position. Instead, draw them out with a question. What kind of myth are you talking about? Do you think nothing in the Bible has historical value? Let the person, or maybe in that case, a professor, explain themselves. And as a good student, listen carefully to their response. You don't even have to cram everything down their throat at that point. Maybe this is going to be an ongoing relationship that you have with a coworker, neighbor, whomever, you know, over many months, many years. And, uh, but it allows you to dialogue. This is so huge, and it's typically forgotten. And typically the reason why many Christians uh, cower away from evangelism opportunities. You all have evangelism opportunities. And you don't have to hit a home run. You can just get on base by asking questions and start there. So you already feel more encouraged and equipped. And you're already going to go out this week and uh, look for an opportunity to ask questions. Questions help turn the tables. Someone at work asks you, do you think homosexuality is a sin? Now, before you blurt out, yes, I do. And now you're ruined, right? Uh, Because that's uh, intolerable in society. Ask some questions to protect yourself. Well, this is actually a very personal question you're asking. I don't mind answering, but before I do, let me ask, uh, you know, is it safe to offer my views? Question mark. Are you the kind of person that's tolerant of views other than your own? Question mark. You could do this all day long. All day long. And it's the same thing Jesus often did with the Pharisees. And it's what Paul does in his writings with rhetorical questions. You see, you can make it very difficult for a person to call you intolerant or judgmental without them looking intolerant or judgmental themselves. So there's no neutral ground when it comes 
to intolerance, right? Everybody has presuppositions and points of view that he thinks is right. So let questions work for you. Work smarter, not harder. Anybody can do this. Anybody can do this. Ask the questions. Okay? And then you can ask leading questions. Now, this is how you wanna, what you want to do as you start defending the faith. Have you ever considered... Dot, 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 dot. This is the only way that I will speak with people about Christianity. Have you ever considered? Now, what are we going to ask them to consider? Well, if we're going to talk about Christianity, what you'll often find is people want to talk about evolution, which I almost refuse to talk about. Because I just, I just don't think it's an issue. Uh, the, it's not the issue. Uh, they want to talk about the dinosaurs, about something they saw on Discovery Channel, uh, or maybe they want to talk, uh, talk about philosophical presuppositions of re- relativity. Well, we can talk about all those things, but really you're just dancing around the edges. Why do that? Go for the jugular in the most sanctified and loving way. Go right for what really matters. And so, uh, what is the thing that really matters? What is the heart of Christianity? There we go. I heard a 16-year-old say the resurrection. So, Mr. Taylor, how are we going to talk about the resurrection of Jesus Christ? First of all, why is the resurrection the heart of Christianity? You You have nothing. Who says that, by the way? Paul, where does Paul say that? 1 Corinthians 15. I love that the young people are shouting these things out. We all need to know this, guys. This is mandatory stuff for every Christian to know because this is the heart. You don't need to know everything about evolution. You know, honestly, I don't know how old the earth is, and I don't care, and I I sleep perfectly well at night not knowing or caring how old the earth is. The Bible doesn't tell me. It doesn't matter at the end of the day to me. But this matters. If Jesus wasn't raised from the dead... You have no Savior, and we're all wasting our time. And why are we sitting here? We should be outside enjoying a nice San Diego day because you're going to die pretty soon. And uh, eat, drink, and be merry. Who says that? The Apostle Paul. So we've got to go to the resurrection. The, 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 the two biggest things to discuss is the resurrection of Jesus Christ and then the authority of the Bible. Now, we start with the resurrection. Because uh, it's, first of all, the heart of Christianity. And there's an easy way to remember a defense of the resurrection, which is in itself a defense of Christianity. And so some of you have heard me use this acrostic before. Uh, I call it the five E's. But now remember everything we talked about with the questions. So let's say a person says they're not a believer. And I'm sitting down enjoying a cappuccino with them. What am I going to say? What am I going to say? Am I going to talk about how Jesus changed my life? No! Do not. Do not talk about how Jesus changed your life. Because you know what? He doesn't care. He's going to talk about how yoga changed his life. He's going to talk about how that cappuccino changed his life. He's going to talk about how, you know, man, after I got divorced and found my new girlfriend, she changed my life. 
I'm glad you have Jesus, but I got this. That's how he thinks. Don't go there. It's not where the apostles went. It's not Christianity. You're, you're preaching personal experience, subjectivity. Now, I'm not saying that there's no place for your testimony. I'm saying that's not the place for it. Because if you bring up your testimony at that point, you've ruined your discussion with this person who's a non-believer. You've gone to the subjective. Vanilla is the best flavor. Rather than the objective. Two plus two equals four. And if you start preaching vanilla is the best flavor, which so many Christians do, we sound arrogant because the guy likes chocolate. And well, who are you to tell me that Christianity is the way to go? It's because it worked for you. We have to go to the objective. We have to go to the objective. So in that moment of, <gasps> what do I do? Have you ever considered, leaving, leading question, you can say this while you're panicking and your breath is right here. Have you, I've done that before. It gets easier the more you do it, though. Ever considered? First of all, I'm going to put these all in ease. Does anybody besides the high school group remember these without looking? Empty tomb. We start there. Have you ever considered the empty tomb? Question mark. You're not saying anything. You're just asking if this person's ever considered it. What empty tomb? Well, the empty tomb of Jesus. Well, how do you know it's empty? Well, the Rome, I don't know, but the Romans and the, and the Jews never disputed it was empty. Right there, you just dropped a bomb in his mind. He's never thought about that before. This is so much more effective than saying, you know, Jesus, uh, uh, you know, changed my life from being a foul-mouthed fisherman to being Peter. Peter doesn't ever do that, by the way. Have you ever considered the empty tomb? That's where we start. And there were hostile witnesses who did not dispute. Now, this guy, if he's ever watched one of those network programs around Easter time, he's going to say, well, yeah, but aren't there other theories about how Jesus, uh, you know, what happened to his body? How do we know that the, uh, you know, how, how do we know that the, uh, uh, the, the women or the people didn't just go to the wrong tomb? I mean, how do they know the right tomb? And you say, good question. I always like to say, good question. You're thinking, you know, well, have you ever considered the fact, see, I'm putting it back into a question, that if the Jews who didn't want Christianity to continue wanted to stop Christianity dead in its tracks, all they had to do was produce the body, and it was a public record. Have you ever considered that? He hasn't considered it. But now what you've done is you're, you're giving him something to think about. And then maybe he has considered it. Maybe there's those one few cases you're going to find where somebody has thought through these things, and you're going to at least in that case have him tell you what he believes. Well, I think maybe aliens stole the body. You're going to meet people like that. Okay, well, have you ever considered the fact that there were eyewitnesses? Next E. Who are the eyewitnesses? More than 500. 
And where do we where do we find that? What was that? First Corinthians fifteen. First Corinthians fifteen is really important for a defense of the gospel. Have you ever considered the fact that there were all these eyewitnesses, not just the disciples, but more than five hundred who saw, who testify? You can even say, look, I'm not saying whether or not it happened. I'm just saying, I'm just asking, have you ever considered the fact that these, these people said they saw Christ and that the tomb was definitely empty? So when you have an empty tomb that neither the Jews nor the Romans, who didn't want to be embarrassed, by the way, that their very efficient methods of execution and sealing a, a tomb uh, would be overturned by a ragtag group of, uh, you know, Judeans, um, they never produced the body. The tomb was empty. Now, maybe it was stolen, the body. There were a lot of grave robbers in those days. Um, Maybe somebody took it. But then you have all these people, more than 500, saying that they saw Jesus. When you put these two things together, it becomes a more compelling argument. I'm just asking, have you ever considered that? Have you ever considered the fact that Paul the Apostle in 1 Corinthians 15 says that more than, or most of these were still alive at the time when he wrote 1 Corinthians. So you could go check out these facts through personal uh, conversation. I mean, this was a public thing. It wasn't some myth. The record that we have is that people were saying this happened, and most of them were still alive who said that they saw. But again, we put it into a question format. Then we come to the 30, because they might say, well, okay, you still have an empty tomb and eyewitnesses, but a body that's stolen. How do we know that these people weren't just lying? I mean, maybe they all got together, and they all wanted to believe the myth, you know, of Bigfoot. I saw Bigfoot. He's out there. Because we hear all kinds of crazy things, right? And, uh, and I, just, I, I love it when people say things like that. They're at least thinking. And I say, yeah, you know, I don't want to believe. I don't believe stories about Bigfoot. Um, and we can't put the story of Jesus on the same level as Sasquatch, you know, running around out in the forest somewhere. It um, doesn't matter if people say, people say they saw UFOs. Um, but here's what you have. You still have an empty tomb and people saying they saw. And then you have a transformation of these people who are witnesses. And the way I remember it is by another E. I've literally used these, like in Starbucks or those kinds of places. An enduring transformation. Yeah, I say of the apostles, because it helps me remember ETA. Like estimated time of arrival, you know. And then this is a big one. Have you ever considered... The fact that these guys who were disciples, right, they were afraid. I mean, the record is they were hiding when Jesus was crucified. They were terrified of being arrested themselves and being executed or thrown into prison. They're they're afraid of really these hostile witnesses, the Jews and the Romans. What would cause someone like Peter who was so afraid he denied Christ three times on the night that he was crucified to only 40 days later uh, 
proclaiming Christ at the Feast of Pentecost in you know, open public square at Jerusalem before all these, not even phased by the fact that he might die. What would cause that guy to go from coward to courageous? What would cause Paul, see these are all questions, to go from Saul of Tarsus, who has a promising career, well-educated, well-esteemed, well-respected, to throwing all of that away to go proclaim the resurrection of Christ if he didn't see these things? I mean, how do we account for the fact that these guys were transformed? Now, some of the answers I've been given is, um, well, lots of people believe things. You know, I had one person tell me, well, look at those people at Heaven's Gate. You know, they remember the Rancho Santa Fe years ago, and they were all crazy. Well, right, and how did they end? How, how did their life go? Did they all go their separate ways and proclaim this UFO that was going to come? And were they all suffering persecution, and each was martyred for the faith after some 30, 40 years? No, they took the easy way out. They all put on similar Nikes, went to a mansion, and drank cyanide, hoping that the spaceship was going to come. That's not a transformation, and that's certainly not enduring. You put all that in the form of questions. Everybody with me so far? So the transformation, we have to let them not get away with that. It's not the same thing as saying that, well, a lot of people believe crazy things. People believe in Bigfoot. Well, yeah, but are they, are they out there proclaiming these things with the kind of clarity that the apostles did, risking their lives? They're not, we're not talking about people who believe in leprechauns. We're talking about people who were willing to be imprisoned and even martyred for the faith, as all of them were, which is what the testimony of the church tells us. So we start here with these three. Any questions so far? Yeah, Ed. Because it comes from the Bible? Well, here's what I would do from that, is that I would go into the next two E's. Uh, the... I mean, and the truth is, is that some people are going to say it's circular reasoning, uh, no matter what you say. And uh, what, I, what I would do there is say, well, how familiar are you with the Bible that you're saying it's, secular, it's circular reasoning? Because I'm just getting it from the Bible, and how do I know it's true? In almost every case I found, people don't, um, they're not that familiar with the Scriptures. Because the next thing I would do is say, look, the resurrection isn't just this one little story in a gigantic religious book, which is how 99% of the people look at it. Not a mathematical number, but you get the idea. Um, I explain that the, the resurrection actually helps explain Old Testament prophecy. And here what I do is it gives me opportunity to talk about how the whole Bible is about Christ, which the majority of people don't know. The majority of people you engage who might be combative about Christianity tend to think of the Bible as a religious book that nobody can really understand, that's full of you know, moral fables that are helpful, but strange visions, poems, all kinds. It's just a collection, a, a, a hodgepodge of different things, and uh, like the Upanishads you know, uh, or the Quran. When in fact, it has, as we know, an unfolding drama, you know, one 
clear story that goes from beginning to end. Now, sometimes people aren't going to understand that because they're spiritually blind, but the, the truth is that a lot of Christians have misrepresented that because they're not properly taught. You know, they go to churches where it's just, basically they're hearing sermons like that without the storyline, the plot line of Christ. So if I take them back to something like Genesis 2 and 3, and where death comes from, and the tree of life, and the promise that there would be life, and then these Old Testament prophecies like Isaiah 25 or Psalm 16, which then Peter quotes in, in uh, Acts 2 at the Feast of Pentecost. I say, look, it's all linked together. So before we just brush it off as, well, you're getting all your testimony from the Bible, well, I would say, but how familiar are you with the Bible? Do you, do you understand the plot line of the Bible uh, before you would just dismiss it as a, relig- a religious text that tells the story about a guy who was raised from the dead once upon a time. Um, that gives me opportunity to uh, link Old Testament and New Testament together. Then what I do is I talk about the last E and the fact that they still have to deal with external writers and witnesses. Boys, can you remember a few? What's that? Pliny the Younger, Josephus, Tacitus. Who else? Anybody else remember another one? What did these guys, who were these guys, first of all? Who was Josephus? Jewish, the most well-respected Jewish historian employed by the Romans. Now, again, you're, you're, you're uh, you know, undereducated person who thinks he's educated, who gets most of his stuff off the internet, who says, well, you're just doing circular reasoning. I know that sounds like uh, a harsh ad hominem, but it's generally true, is the, is the fact. And when they begin to attack the Bible for circular reasoning, I'll say, well, do you, do you know who Josephus is? Now, if he's educated, he's going to know who Josephus is, because he is the most respected historian of the first century, employed by the Romans. You can, go, you can go check it out. There's nothing to hide. Go, go look it up. I like spending time on the internet. Go look them up. And he talks about people in the first century saying that this Jesus of Nazareth, who was crucified, was raised from the dead. He's not saying he believes in it. He's saying that people are going around talking about it. That's not in the Bible. That's a Roman historian. And then with other Roman historians and writers, Pliny the Younger, Tacitus, they have similar, they talk about the crucifixion. People say they, the crucifixion was easy to determine, public record, and you got these people going around saying that Jesus was raised from the dead. So if you, we have witnesses that are outside of Scripture that say that 2,000 years ago in Jerusalem there was a commotion. And it's recorded in history. Now that allows that person, who's the skeptic, to begin to approach Scripture as he should, which is that it's not just a book of moral code, it's actually a historical document that documents history. Redemptive history, albeit, but history nonetheless. And there's nothing that we find in history that's going to conflict 
with redemptive history, as we've seen so many times with archaeological discoveries. So, I mean, that's a very good question. The circular, and even, but I've even had after that people still throw their arms up and say, well, to me, it just still sounds like a circular reasoning. And of course, at that point, we have to remember that no argument we give is ultimately going to open the heart. Only the Holy Spirit can do that. However, Christian, the fact that the Holy Spirit can open the heart does not give us a license to then be lazy and not engage somebody with the mind. Because these are the very methods that we see Paul and the apostles using. And it's what we're commanded to do in uh, 1 Peter. But my, my encouragement to you is, if you can remember this, empty tomb, eyewitnesses, ETA, explanation of Old Testament prophecy, external witnesses like Josephus, Tacitus, Pliny the Younger, uh, and really hit these first three. And have that in your mind, you've at least got a framework with which you can work, which is a lot better than being kind of freaked out, you know, feeling like I've been tossed overboard with no life preserver, but I have at least something to work with. And then to encourage you, keep it always in question format. And you know what? As you're listening to the person talk and you're not sure uh, what you're going to say next, just continue to ask questions. Well, how did you come to that conclusion? And just relax and let them talk. Because, again, it's allowing you to show interest in them. And then you can, you know, again, it doesn't, it's not, well, I have to get this person saved in the next 30 minutes. This might be a dialogue that you have for six months. But you've got to take time with them. You know, that doesn't mean, well, I just ask my one question. What did you mean by that? And then leave and never talk to the person again. Okay, it doesn't work that way. Um, although if you never do see the person again, uh, you can do what Gary Kokel says, put a little rock in their shoe where you uh, at least give them something to think about. You know, even if you only get to the first E. And then you've got to leave because, you know, your stop on the train has come and uh, you're getting off, you know, in, in Rome and they're going on to Florence and you never see the person again. Um, you at least put a rock in their shoe. And if they are elect, God's going to bring somebody else to put a rock in their shoe. And God's going to bring somebody else the same way he did with us. Many of us came to faith in Christ by having somebody tell us something that bugged us. And we wanted, to, and we wanted answers, and we went and looked for the answers, because the answers are there. That's the one thing I just always love to tell people. All the answers are there, if you really want them. Um, it's just that many people don't want the answers. What they really want to do with a hardened heart which is what we did before we were brought to faith in Christ, is look for excuses, not answers. Reasons not to believe. So that I can continue to live the way I want to live without having to submit to God, because as the Bible says, we are by nature God-haters. But if you give them something to think about, the Lord can use that, because he uses people to reach people. As ineffective and as unfaithful as we are at times, he's, that's the method he's chosen, is to use people to reach other people. Any other questions? Yeah. Non-believers that want me to pray with them? Yeah. It depends on the situation. It really depends. Um, that's, that can be a tough one, because you don't want to compromise uh, the truth, 
and and you don't want to like I, you know I have family members who are not believers or pagans and they think that it's perfectly because they they do pray pagans pray and with their hands raised even yeah, and uh, and and I won't pray with them because I know if I do that I'm violating my conscience it's kind of a First Corinthians nine and ten thing um, and they'll think that I'm saying oh, we both believe in God, we just come at different routes. But that's a different situation than maybe an unbeliever that I know that I've, I, I've developed a relationship with, and they're kind of searching. They don't really know where they're at. Maybe the guy's going through a divorce, or he just lost a friend, and he says, would you pray for me? In that situation, I'm not going to say, well, I can't pray for you because you know, you're an unbeliever. Of course I'm going to pray for him, even right there. Uh, but, so I think we have to use wisdom. Not every case is going to be the same. But I know how hard it is, you know, if you've got family members, I, you know, come Thanksgiving time, because it's Thanksgiving, right? You're supposed to give thanks to whom, right? And so they, they say, oh, let's all join hands because we're a family here. And it feels good to hold our family's hands. And you're like, ah, and you're looking over at, you know, your cousin, you're like, it's just like, I can't do it. I'm sorry. And then guess who always gets asked to lead the prayer? Because I'm the professional, right? And so then you've got to be careful in your words. Do you really say, Father in heaven? Because he's not the father of, you know, Cousin Billy over here, who's, you know, opposed to Christianity. But hey, I love it, you know. We all got our own way to God, holding hands. And so... Um, you know, then, then you got to be very careful in your words. Um, or just say, you know, I'm, probably now's not the best time to do this. Or, or just show up late after the prayer. That might be a good way to do it. I'm serious. You have to think about what is best for your client. You don't want to compromise and make that person think that you both have the same God. But at the same time, you have to have love. That's what I'm saying. So there's a careful balance there. There was another question. Was there, yeah, Chris. Right. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, and, and the Lord, like I said, he uses people to reach people. I think sometimes we, uh, we assume that since it's only the gospel that can open the heart, that, well, I can't do anything with my words. That's not true. The Lord uses means. The Holy Spirit uses means. You know, faith comes by hearing and the hearing by the word of Christ. But a lot of times hearing the word of Christ comes over the process of, you know, a year or two. And we know this as Calvinists, right? When we were Arminians, we all thought we knew the exact moment. And then you become a Calvinist, you're like, eh, well, it was sometime between age four and 34. And... Uh, you know, there's a, sometimes a process by, by hearing, so many rocks and, and shoes. Yeah, I've been watching that show with Morgan Freeman about how, how do we know there's a God or whatever it is. Have you seen that yet? I have not, but I can tell I don't like it already. <laughs> so. Well, and that's the majority of our culture now is that um, I see this all the time you know, when I take flights and if I watch a movie or something, oh, so many times the point of the movie is 
you know, like it was on The Life of Pi, and uh, and then there was another movie, I forget which one it was, a Ridley Scott film, but so often the point is whatever you choose to believe is the truth for you and good for you. And, uh, you know, with that, I would say, well, would you choose to, be- what, what if we were on a plane where the pilot chose to believe that Hawaii was in the Atlantic? Would it make it true? Because Hawaii can only be in one place. And if we're going to Hawaii, I want to know that the pilot knows where it's at objectively, regardless of what he chooses to believe, right? And so uh, we have to always ask those questions and turn the tables. Oh, yeah, that's our culture. That's our whole culture. Yeah, I know. That's our, we love our celebrities as if, as if they are. They're the philosophers of our day. And, uh, yeah, we're just getting dumber and dumber as a society. You know, that's why it makes it difficult to even talk about these things with people. You know, and so there was another uh, question, Ed. You mean engaging in, you're talking about uh, there, the fact that they're sinners. Yeah, that God hates sin. Yeah. Should we talk about that? Oh, you're talking about the hard things of the Old Testament. Sure. Yeah, that's one that often comes up. Uh, people get, get that confused all the time. We could talk about that at maybe another class. But, um, yeah, like, for example, why did God, and you read in Deuteronomy chapter 20, it says, uh, you know, as you're going through the wilderness, if an army rolls up on you, kill the men. Or first try to make peace with them. And then if they don't make peace, kill only the men. And we get that. In our modern world, as our modern minds look back anachronistically into an ancient world, an ancient text, we're okay with that. But then the next few verses it says, but when you get to the land that I am giving you, you'll wipe out everything. Women, children, all of it. And then we don't like that. As you know, modern people looking back into the ancient world, we think that that should be held to our standard, which you can put it all question format. You know, so do you think that God should be held to your standard? Do you think that the ancient world should be held to your standard? What I like to do in those situations is, first of all, talk about sin and are we deserving of punishment? Are, are, are all people sinful and deserving of punishment? Because the chances are this person has too high of a view of man's morality, and, um, and, and he wants God to come down to his life. He basically looks at God as a bigger version of himself, projects his image on God. Um, then what I try to do is explain how there, you know, God has this ethic okay, of... Uh, of hatred against sin and evil that he will uh, expunge on the last day. But today is not that day. And we had glimpses of that, you know, intruding into history in the Old Testament. But since the resurrection of Jesus Christ, today is the day of salvation, but that day is coming, a day that we deserve. So before we try to put God on trial, which is all he's trying to do, 
C.S. Lewis said he's got God in the dock. Before we put God on trial for the flood, Canaan, you know, the Red Sea, the plagues, um, we have to reverse that and show that we deserve to be on trial and that that day's coming um, when God's patience runs out. That's, how, that's where I would go with that. And try to cast it in, in, the, in the light that the New Testament gives of um, today is the day of salvation. In other words, you're out of excuses. Just come to Jesus Christ. I got to go. <laughs> but we can talk some more later. See, that kind of thing. And uh, anyway. Yes. Right. Absolutely. Bob, that is so, I'm glad, that's a good place to end. I'm so glad you asked that. It, you know, it, so if we mess up, if you bumble this up, let's say you just, you just make a disaster of it. Um, the Lord can still use that. <laughs> he can still use it, first of all. And then also you can learn, I've found myself learning so many times when I couldn't remember something. It's like, you know, when you get called on in class, and, ah, oh, I don't remember, I didn't know the answer. Now you always know that answer for the rest of your life, right? And so you, you grow in that way. But also, yeah, the Lord can use our most feeble attempts. But I think making an attempt really shows, you know, our love for the truth and our love for that other person. I mean, how much do you have to hate somebody to not say anything to them when you do know the truth? And just expect, well, that somebody else will come along, somebody more talented. No, the Lord wants to use you. He wants to use you. And he's going to use you. And so get out there. Ask questions. Love those people. Those people that are next door to you. Get to know them. Develop relationships. Allow your lifestyle to be... Do your good works before others so that your light so shines and they glorify your Father in heaven. And, uh, And then when they have questions, give them answers. And then put things in the form of questions to find out what they believe. And... uh, develop these relationships. All right, we'll stop there. Maybe if I do this again before the end of the year, we'll talk about uh, recognizing some self-defeating statements and bad arguments and logical fallacies. That's always fun, especially in our modern world. And, but if you have any more questions, I'll, I'll stick around for a few minutes. Let's pray. Our God and Father, we thank you for the truth that you've once for all delivered to the saints. Help us, O oh Lord, we pray, to know that truth and to know it well, to be familiar enough with it that we're able naturally to discuss it with others. Give us love for the lost, love for our neighbor, and give us opportunity, we pray, Father, uh, to talk about the resurrection of Christ. Help us to tell them that we're only interested in the truth and that we're not merely Christians because we were raised this way or we think it works best for us. Help us, O Lord, we pray, to stick to what has been revealed and to give that in love. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.